there and back again, a tale from 102 Street to Mill Woods. This week, we've got some big train news. And to pair with that, some big zoning bylaw renewal news as well. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Mac, most years when it gets to October, Council's like winding down. They're getting ready for the supplementary operating budget adjustment. But, you know, in the first year after a big budget has passed, it's usually pretty non-consequential. And they're chilling. You know, they're getting ready to go trick-or-treating. They're getting ready for their holiday. This year is not like those years, though, Mac. We have news coming out the wazoo. It's almost like the election year, right? Leading into October, there's just so much stuff happening related to city council. This week, of course, the last couple of weeks, it's been all zoning bylaw renewal. We've also got, as you teased off the top, some big train news. And we should say the supplemental operating budget adjustment is coming. The city has uh, had some initial... um, The city has released that information now and council will be turning their attention toward budget uh, for the rest of the year. And of course, we will discuss it along with them. But we have much more important news to discuss right now, Mac. And that's first that Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. Great. Got that out of the way. You know it. I know it. Blizzner knows it now. The train, Mac, the train is running in a mere from recording on October 26th, like about a week. It is opening November 4th at 5.15 a.m. And you can bet I'm going to be there. It's actually happening. So uh, I used to, as listeners will know, go down 102nd Avenue multiple times every day for daycare. Guess what? Kids grow up, they get older. Now we go the other direction for kindergarten. But (laughs) my better half still goes that way. And she said to me the other day, hey, they took down all the fences. I think maybe the train's going to open. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many times have we seen a little bit of progress and thought the train was going to open? But serves me right for doubting her because lo and behold, a couple of days later, maybe a day later, I can't remember, news release drops, the train is opening, they've given the go ahead, and we will finally get to ride from downtown to Millwoods on the Valley Line Southeast LRT. It also, in the news release, said, of course, that a formal grand opening ceremony will be held in 2024, which is interesting, right? Because usually when we open train lines like this, we like to get all the funding partners, the MLAs, the MPs, you know, all the councillors, everybody together. They take a big picture, they cut a ribbon, all that kind of stuff interesting that we're not doing that this time. We're running the train for a number of months before we actually get that grand opening ceremony. If you're opening a train that's three years too late and, you know, is a multi-billion dollar project, you want to get that ribbon cutting going. You want to get the accolades. I think there was a value computation made. It's like, okay, to get all the funding partners, to get all the feds here and everything, that's going to take some time and organization. We're not delaying the opening of the train for the ribbon cutting. So Transed said, we can go. They just go. Though, absent a formal ribbon cutting Mac, the community is going to party. I immediately tweeted that I will be there at 5.15 a.m. at the 102 Street stop downtown. I've since been uh, contacted by several people, including a couple of counselors, saying, yep, us too. Uh, Ann Stevenson has indicated that she's going to be bringing some cupcakes for people Ooh. in reward. The short and skinny of it is, show up at 102 Street downtown at 5.15 a.m. on Saturday, November 4th. And you can come enjoy the party of riding the train to Millwoods and back. It's going to be a party, Mac. This is, dear listener, your official invite. 
You're invited. <laughs> Come attend. I usually have a kid awake at 5.15 in the morning. I can probably make it out to this party. That sounds like a great time. And it's only like a couple blocks from your house too. So, you know. Absolutely. Are you okay with uh, me doxing you like that? <laughs> I think I've probably said it on the show. So you're going to ride the lion train. You're going to find out uh, how long it takes, how well everything works. Are you concerned about those concrete pillars? There's a serious answer to that question and a non-serious answer to that question. The serious answer is no, it's been safety certified. We're fine. The non-serious answer is when something goes wrong, I want to be on it and I want to <laughs> be live tweeting it. So I have to be on that first train. This is sort of the situation where an elevator breaks, right? The safest yep. elevator to ride on is the one that just had its cable snapped because that's not going to happen again. Right. This train after all the acrimony and all the delays and all the problems that have cropped up, there is no way this train isn't safe. Granted, there was no way that this train was opening after Folkfest, so my predictions, take them with a grain of salt. I've been wrong before. I have no misgivings about jumping on that train. I think it'll be perfectly safe and pleasant. I think that's the right take. I've got a couple other things that stood out to me about this. So number one, it's open but it's not at the promised frequency. So initially they said trains will run at 10 minute intervals during peak hours rather than every five minutes. And the city is making this decision, I understand, based on ridership capacity and quote, lessons learned from other municipalities. What do you make of that? So I think that the city of Edmonton has a fun little pastime where what it likes to do is spend a lot of money and then shoot itself in the foot at the last possible hour. <laughs> and we couldn't let this big project go without it. It's notable here that the city took ownership of this change. They, TransEd was ready and rearing to go at five-minute intervals, mm -hmm. and the city requested that they actually operate the service more slowly. If I was to predict what was happening here, there's two things here. The first is... There's no shortage of people taking photos of empty bike lanes and saying, look, we invested all this money and there's no one here. Yeah. Empty trains is another opportunity for naysayers to photograph and take pictures of it. The other thing that I think is a non-trivial factor in the, in the decision making of the city right here is if you're running half as frequently at peak hours as full capacity, that is half as many opportunities for a vehicle to crash into this thing. <laughs> and uh, like, you know, you laugh, but I think that's a very real consideration. They don't want opening week to be marred by collisions with vehicles. That is a bad scenario for city comms. And if it is the case that they don't expect Valley Line ridership to immediately jump to 100%, though I think it's notable that at 5.15 a.m. there will be 6,000 people on the train and at 5.25 a.m. there will be four people right. on the train. Um, <laughs> but if they don't expect this massive immediate capacity, maybe it is better to get some trains running, get vehicle drivers more used to them, and hopefully mitigate some of those catastrophic collisions. I understand what you're saying, and yet we've been testing this train. Trains have been running up and down that line for quite some time. And if drivers were going to get used to the idea that there's trains there and they should not, you know, turn and drive into them, I would have thought the testing period would have provided ample time for that to happen. And that kind of brings me to the second thing I wanted to mention, which is when I read this news release, there was another little part that jumped out at me. And it, on the one hand, made me feel like... All is right in Edmonton. True to form, like any major project that we complete, we say, it's done, 
but we're going to continue to do, <laughs> you know, landscaping and curbs and final maintenance and final operational exercises, all this kind of stuff over the coming weeks. I don't understand why we can't complete, complete a project, but more directly related to this project, why haven't we finished curbs and landscaping already? This line has basically been ready to go for months and months and months. There has been no material construction aside from replacing the cables most recently. We've just been running empty trains. Why weren't there a team of people doing the curbs all summer long while we're waiting for the train to open? I don't understand why that is left until now. That makes no sense to me. My only guess would be it's the same thing when you're doing home renovations. You get your electrical final inspection before you put the drywall on. Maybe if they fail safety certification, they don't want to have to rip up curbs that they just finished. I don't know how the rail safety certifier certifies rail safety. Yeah. Did they need curbs to not be there? I doubt it. That doesn't seem like the same analog as drywall. But if I had to guess, that would be my guess as the only reasonable way that this could happen. I think your analogy around the, the home renovation, home construction thing is really apt. And I think it's probably closer to what is behind <laughs> this. It's just frustrating that we've waited so long for this train. You know, we've talked about on the show how this is going to be the most tested thing we've ever done in this city. And yet we get to opening day and there's still all these other things that aren't done yet. It's a bit like surely we had enough time to finish it. <laughs> One other thing that was notable in the uh, press release was highlighting that this is the Valley Line Southeast, and the other half of the line will be Valley Line West that is being built by Marigold Infrastructure Partners, and that will connect to West Edmonton Mall and Lewis Farms. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, um, I don't know, was top of my mind is, okay, if Transit is being paid to build, operate, and maintain this line, and Marigold is being paid to build, maintain, and operate the lines, and they have different cars like actual LRT cars, and they have different staff, is it going to work, right? Can you ride from Mill Woods to West Edmonton Mall? Do you have to transfer midway? Are the tracks compatible with the two cars? So I had reached out in preparation of the line opening months and months ago. <laughs> I was optimistic. Uh, so back in July, I had reached out to uh, the integrated infrastructure partner at uh, ETS. Jillian confirmed to me that the LRVs are compatible with each other and that no transfer will be required between Millwoods and Lewis Terminus. You can get on at Millwoods. You can ride the whole way. There's no different fare media. It's all art cards. Everything is fine. Knock on wood, of course. But the intention is that this should be a seamless experience. So we can make some great decisions, it would seem. That is encouraging. And so far, at least, the Valley Line West project is evidently on schedule. Plenty of time yet for that to go off the rails, as it were. <laughs> but uh, hopefully, as they say, you know, they've learned from the mistakes of this project and uh, the setbacks, some of which are just unavoidable, right? And that line will open on schedule. But we have lots of time to wait for Valley Line West. We first need to have the party for Valley Line Southeast. So you talked about this train being the most tested thing that we've ever done in Edmonton. I think you're probably right about that. It's been tested for a long time. And we just passed the most consulted thing in Edmonton history. It seems almost anticlimactic. Uh, we've been talking about this not for very long, but, you know, in process for years. And we talked about it a lot and a lot and a lot for months. And then in an 11 to 2 vote on Monday after we recorded, council passed the zoning bylaw renewal project and bylaw 
20,000 and one is now law. And I would like to point out that we were right, Troy. We've been wrong a few other times in our predictions about how council will vote, but I think we nailed this one. We had no indication that council was going to uh, oppose the zoning bylaw renewal, despite having more than 290 people come and speak, about 160 of them opposed, you know, the remainder in favor. They had to add extra days. They added Thursday, Friday, Monday for this public hearing for time to hear from everyone and then to talk about it with administration. Um, This is on top of the years and years of engagement and input that the city has gathered that went into this project. And, you know, we thought that it seemed like most people that might have swayed council were in favor of getting this done. And we also thought that, you know, council will likely approve the zoning bylaw renewal as it is, and then reinforce the idea that it's a living document and we can iterate on it. We can make amendments. I did kind of think we'd have a bit more time before that happened, but alas, we did (laughs) not. Because following the approval of the zoning bylaw renewal, they discussed and voted on 27 subsequent motions. Before we get into those, we should also mention that on Friday, Councillor Principe and Councillor Rice did attempt to delay this, right? This was something that we thought could have been a possibility, although it seemed unlikely that most of council would go along with it. They asked for a delay of of six months. And and what they were really seeking there was to have further engagement on the things that came up during the public hearing. And they mentioned in particular heritage preservation, energy efficiency, aging in place, separation of services, and adequate green space as some of the things they wanted to look at. Um, And that, of course, failed with just those two in favor. As speakers were talking towards the end, there was a lot of debate about sort of what council was able to do. I noticed that um, some speakers said council can't even require changes to the building code. And then other people said, oh, well, actually they can. And Mac, I have never seen so many Edmontonians interested in city charters. Right. The answer to the question, of course, is no municipalities under the MGA cannot amend the building code except the big city charters that were passed by the NDP government allow municipalities to amend certain parts of the MGA. We used a charter bylaw to set the default speed limit to 40 kilometers an hour, and a charter bylaw would would have been able to, for example, amend the building code to require things like EV chargers and solar readiness. Though it was very exciting to see so many people suddenly interested in the tenuous relationship that the municipalities have with the government. Because I heard more than one speaker say, you know, you've got this charter power. It would be a real shame if it went away. So better use it now before the uh, UCP takes it away. This is, of course, in reference, the other part of the city charters was the city charter fiscal framework, a profit sharing part of the city charters that was immediately ripped up by the UCP upon taking government. So, uh, Mac, I just thought that was a little fascinating aside that we got as part of this process is a lot more sort of like civic engagement from uh, the population. I think a general better awareness of how the city works and what's city and what's provincial is a good thing. That bodes well for future debates and future discussions if more people understand, you know, what are the delineations here. So I, I will be encouraged by what you just described rather than dismayed. So we don't have to talk much about the ZBR because we've talked at length about the mechanics of the bylaw. But I think what the interesting thing to talk about now is the 27 subsequent motions that came immediately afterwards. I too thought, you know, council might wait a week or something. But, you know, in hindsight, politically, 
they just heard 300 speakers who wanted action. They're getting on the record that they are taking action on all of these items. There were 27 of them. Many of them were dull, but you pulled out some interesting ones. Yeah, I think the other thing is council probably just wanted to just get everything related to zoning bylaw renewal out of the way so they didn't have to talk or think about it anymore. So I can understand the desire to just deal with all the subsequence right then and there. A good chunk of them weren't that interesting. As you say, they're 13 nothing. They're mainly asking for reports, looking for options, looking for data, looking for updates, that kind of thing. Uh, but there were a few that were a little more interesting and a little closer in terms of a, a vote. So the first one actually was a defeated six to seven. So this was a pretty close vote. This was put forward by councillors Knack and Cartmel. And it was about proposing amendments to change the height on the small-scale residential zone. With a caveat, I was very upset that this was the first subsequent motion. And sort of how the process worked is council wasn't quite sure how they were going to actually do all these subsequents. Everyone around the room knew that they had subsequents in their pocket that they yeah. wanted to get to. Knack was the first one to propose it. And then they started asking questions and debating it. And it was 45 minutes, almost an hour of debating Nax motion. And you could see around the room, people are like, okay, but I have like nine of these I want to make. How are we going to do this? Like, get on with it. <laughs> yeah, there, there was there was some debate with the clerk and the chair. And then they decided, okay, you know, we're going to do this kind of like budget. Everyone's going to read in everything. We're going to see what's on the table. And then we'll go through one by one. Um, so they each got a turn picking top of their list. And then they went around and proposed the motions. Because of that, all of us watching right after the ZBR passed, got to see this motion. And it was pretty upsetting to me because the crux of this motion is essentially neighbor rights. So if you are beside a bungalow, then you have a max height that is, you know, effectively two stories instead of three stories. But if you're not by a bungalow, then he said, you know, you can even increase the height further beyond what we passed in the uh, small scale zone in the ZBR. And like, that's one of those things that like sounds great in principle. It sounds like gentle density, but it was one of the things that we proposed in the MNO as well, the mature neighborhood overlay, which is, okay, we in these post-war homes have these huge setbacks. A lot of people, you know, recognize that front yards are pretty big wasted space. So the MNO proposed you could reduce these front setbacks, but only as a percentage of the house beside you. You don't want a house jutting out further than the other houses. But in practical terms, that meant, okay, in order to progress forward, you need to get entire blocks aligned or like a couple houses have to have these really trash, not really a front yard, but not the advantages of not having that setback in order for the other people to reap the benefits. So in the case of Nax motion, you know, if someone had a bungalow beside them, they wouldn't be able to build to the best use of the zone they're in. But if that bungalow then decides to knock it down, then they even get a bonus. They can build higher than the best use. So it mm -hmm. disincentivizes development because the first one to act loses. That's why I don't love those kind of rules. And I was glad that council didn't pass it, even though this wasn't to actually do it. This was to generate a report on what it would look like. Yeah, a report with draft amendments, which, you know, the report could have easily turned into, we'll go make those amendments. But it was a close one, six to seven, I think among the closest of any of the subsequent motions. I think the other piece of context with all these subsequent motions is we heard some debate right off the front of Councillor Aaron Paquette said he had in his mind he was just going to vote yes for all of these subsequent amendments, generate the reports, because what's bad about information? We often don't talk about this. We like to watch city council meetings. But in the same way that golf 
is a very expensive hobby. <laughs> we too have a very expensive hobby. City council meetings and generating reports is stupidly expensive. You have staff time to generate these reports, to do analysis on these reports. You have to prepare these reports. You have to actually get the staff in the meeting to present to council. You have to have legal vet things. You have to have the clerks vet things. Like it is a hugely expensive operation. And if you are generating reports on information that you know you're not going to pass, just don't, don't do it. We have a thing called OP12, which is to the stop wasting money motion. Counselors should not be making motions to direct staff to waste money. And we did hear some pushback in the room about just that. Counselor Joanne Wright really, you know, needled in on like, well, if we're not going to pass something, we shouldn't generate a report about it. Yeah. Uh, and then council became a little bit more judicious after that conversation about what they will and won't generate reports for. And it wasn't until the very late motions that we even saw the word memo mentioned, which is a mechanism they have to gather some information without point uh, doing all the things you just pointed out, like get staff in the room and get legal review and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a couple of the later subsequent motions asked for that. Okay, so that's good context. Another one that seemed a bit close, carried eight to five, was subsequent motion number four from Councillors Rutherford and Knack. And this feels like a little bit of a restating of that first one, right? This one was really interesting because of the council discussion that uh, went around it, uh, because the initial motion that um, Councillor Aaron Rutherford made was actually to disincentivize single-family housing. Mm. And Councillor Cartmel immediately said, whoa, 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 whoa. And then the rest <laughs> of council picked up. They're like, hey, we're not anti on this council. We're pro on this council. The language was massaged to, okay, well, if we incent multi-unit development, that has the same effect, but it's carrots instead of sticks. But I think with that context in mind, it does color the motion a little bit. It's less of a restating. And this is more of what Councillor Rutherford wanted to do here is say, hey, you know, single family housing is very pervasive. What can we do to make sure other types of housing actually get built. And this is the end result that we got. It was carried eight to five. I think most of the opposition to this motion sort of just came in the form of, well, maybe we're already doing it. I know there was some sentiment in the room of, we just passed this ZBR, which in itself is supposed to provide development opportunity to do more of this multi-unit stuff. Maybe let's let it try and work before we go smashing the peggy bank to give more incentives, which is a reasonable position to take. Yeah. And we saw that a lot through the meeting. The mayor was, you know, very clear in some of his comments that instead of making changes right now, he would like to see how the zoning bylaw works for a year or so. How sensible of our mayor. Let's do a couple more. Subsequent number six was from councillors Cartmel and Rice. This was also a very close one, defeated six to seven. And this one was about changing the lot size ratio from 75 square meters per dwelling to 100 square meters per dwelling in the small scale residential zone. I found myself not disagreeing with Tim Cartmel when he read the motion in. And the more he defended it, the more I found myself disagreeing with him. Mm. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, make sure to provide your enemy with plenty of rope. <laughs> the crux of this motion is essentially he felt that uh, on his particular lot, eight units would be too many. Four would be the right amount. Yeah. If you had looked in the existing RF3 zone, there's actually substantially more uh, development right uh, in RF3 than in the new RS zone. Now, of course, 
the practical applications because there's things like site coverage and there's things like setbacks and you have multiple locks that you have to get together. In practice, there's not a ton of sites in Edmonton that would have been able to get to the maximum 12 units that they would have been allowed in RF3. Uh, But, you know, there do exist a couple sites in the city of Edmonton where the rezoning actually provides a downgrade in terms of number of units. But for the bulk of the city, it is an upgrade in terms of the number of units. And this number change was just you know, to reflect the numbers changing a little bit. And city administration did say there was some massaging of these numbers in development simply because they wanted to match their current zone potential. Mm -hmm. This motion at the end of it is just arguing about numbers. And we're going to see that a lot um, as the zoning bylaw continues to develop. I think the sort of like number of units per site is going to be actually a pretty big point of contention over the next couple of years. We may see it go down to six. We may see it go up to 10, but like this eight number, it's kind of just like felt right to the planners. And they obviously did some research, but there's no correct answer to this, especially when you're doing something as broad as upzoning an entire city, right? Right. Yeah. And this is why we do have the things like, you know, the modifiers and the uh, district planning and other tools that we can overlay on top of this to get those numbers quite right. Uh, so Councillor Carmel tried to make it different didn't quite work. Well, I don't know if you heard these ones, but two more that I thought we should mention. Number 24, this is called the Waste Subsequent Motion from Councillor Stevenson. And this is preparing amendments to delete a section and to provide a memo. So here's where we got our first memo, outlining the review of vehicle access paths to waste storage areas as part of some other waste services standards review that is happening. And the objective is to minimize the area allocated for vehicle access paths. And this was defeated five to seven. That's one of those weird motions where you're like, what exactly were they thinking about there? Yeah. Uh, Reading the text, I have to assume that must be related to Metro 78 in some way, or at least broadly inspired by. Uh, Metro 78, if you followed the zoning barrel renewal, inspired a lot of the opposition to the ZBR. And one of the big oppositions to that development was safe access for garbage pickup. Opponents of Metro 78 argued that the new design did not allow the garbage trucks safe and consistent access to the the waste pickup facilities. So perhaps this was about that. This was one of them that I had tuned out a little bit. Uh, Were you tuned in to any more of these ones? No, I wasn't. But the last one I wanted to mention, I read and I just, I thought it was worth mentioning. So Councillor Rice made five subsequent motions. All of them (laughs) were defeated except for one. It was uh, subsequent motion 26. And this was passed eight to five. And the motion I'm going to read, that administration provide a memo on how to plan infrastructure improvements that will be needed as a result of implementation of the new zoning bylaw. Like, what, what does that even mean? Like, how, how are you going to encapsulate that in a memo? Like, this is a really bizarre motion to me. I think this is the participation ribbon motion. <laughs> uh, it's, we have rejected all your other amendments, but sure, Councillor Rice, you can have a unanimous carry on this memo. Yeah, that's, I mean, it wasn't even unanimous, but I mean, hey, we'll pass it for you. Oh, no, it's, I was reading above the 25 was carried 13. <laughs> this one was carried 8-5, probably yeah. because of the same reason. How exactly are you going to put that in a memo and how much staff time? Are they going to write a novel? You know, right. is this going to be right. a 300 page memo uh, detailing infrastructure needs of the city? Infrastructure is just such a broad word in this context as well. Anyway, I, I thought that one was kind of amusing when I saw that. And maybe it was just they're getting to the end. It's like, whatever. 
keep going. <laughs> uh, and I thought it was a very interesting that the final motion of the day, motion 27, you know, given that I had access to this document, it's going to sound like I was less prescient early on in the uh, <laughs> episode, but it's that administration as part of the zoning bylaw one-year report include analysis on the eight dwelling maximum in the RS zone and provide options for amendments to remove or expand this regulation if required. So it looks like the final motion of the day is like, yeah, you know what? Eight units. Let's double check in a year if this was right. Which sounds like something that cities should be doing already. You know, I don't think this request or report about this should be so onerous and expensive. I would expect the people in charge of zoning at the city to already be evaluating that, given that it is one of the most material changes from this whole process. Though, you know, given our history with administration, I'm appreciative that if council wants a specific <laughs> piece of information, they ask for it. Fair enough. Well, of course, um, continuing on our big news streak, Mac, big news, I think... One million people spoke with a unified voice if the city of Edmonton press release is to be believed. Well, a thousand people were surveyed, but probably representative of that million. The news <laughs> release was titled Climate Change Top of Mind for Edmontonians. <laughs> and this is all about the city's annual climate change and energy perception survey, which found that nearly 75% of people who responded are concerned about climate change and about two-thirds recognize the economic opportunity presented by climate change and energy transition, which is maybe a little bit more questionable. But the first one really should uh, be all the evidence that city manager Andre Corbold needs to move forward with action on climate change. Of course, our joking about Andre Corbold comes from budget this year where council was needling the city manager asking why weren't our climate change initiatives funded, and he pretty famously said, well, you know, I don't hear Edmontonians speaking up. I don't hear one million voices talking about climate change. And until we get that point, I don't think it's a priority for Edmontonians. Uh, paraphrasing slightly there. That quote has stuck with him. I yeah. have since heard internally at the city of Edmonton that he's not proud of that specific phraseology and the, the actions have changed and shifted slightly from that presentation. This does show, at least from an organizational standpoint, Maybe messaging-wise, they're ready to shift their perspective on climate change. Indeed. Uh, the final thing I want to talk about this week is just a topic that's coming up next week at Edmonton City Council. So we'll see what actually happens with this. But it's about office tower conversions. And this report was really interesting to me because it came with a report on the downtown CRL and updates about how the community revitalization levy has been doing in the downtown area. And... All of this is ostensibly about how can we get more residents downtown? How can we increase the vibrancy of downtown? Across North America, with office vacancy rising, office to residential tower conversions are one of those things that seem like a golden ticket. Um, more cities have quickly been discovering that office to uh, residential conversions are very hard and very expensive. And Edmonton, too, has discovered that. And in the report, uh, the city says in their surveying of the development community, it would require a financial incentive of about $75 to $100 per square foot to incent these conversions to actually occur, which equates to quite a lot of money. And interestingly enough, in that $100 per square foot subsidy, you know, factoring in for tax uplift and new residences and all that, the city estimates that it would take over a century for that investment to be repaid. If it ever is, right? I mean, if who knows it ever will happen in that time period. It's not particularly surprising, right? When you build an office tower, 
you have central washrooms, you don't have windows that open, you don't have a lot of the things that are required for residential living. Most office buildings are not built like the Epcor Tower, right? Which is maybe a little bit closer to a residential tower than an office tower traditionally might be. You got to upgrade systems and all of that as well. So it can be quite expensive. But you mentioned the CRL report went alongside this and said, maybe we don't need to spend all this money on an incentive, right? Well, it didn't quite say that as a recommendation, but reading the report, all the sort of pieces of evidence were there and the conclusion wasn't explicitly made to council. But one of the lines in the report that I thought was really interesting was, quote, several CRL projects are nearing completion and others are committed. These are fulfilling their intended effect of encouraging development. One high rise is being built on the edge of Warehouse Park and the others are planned, end quote. What this indicated to me is that when we enhance livability of downtown and we make it a more pleasant place to live, more developers build places for people to live. And I think back to even with offices. Stantec, one of the premier employers in our downtown, back in, what was it, 2014 or 2016, the downtown bike grid was basically Stantec's fault. They did a survey of their employees and their employees basically said, if we can't bike to work, we're really upset. So they subsidized the production of the downtown bike grid uh, assessment in order to get it done so that their employees would be happy about the downtown office space. And I'm just spitballing here. Maybe reinvesting and completely redoing Jasper Ave as a seven lane traffic gutter freeway is not the livability improvement that encourages downtown to be this livable mecca that city administration so wants it to be. I think that's a really good argument that we know if we make the amenities here, this is what a CRL is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to provide the infrastructure for an area so that development becomes more appealing. It makes sense to me that building parks, green space, active transportation corridors, all of those kinds of things would make it more appealing to developers to come in and build properties. Having said all that, I am just thinking about Calgary, Troy. Calgary has had this downtown Calgary development incentive program for a little while now, so they're ahead of us on this. They've also had more vacancy than Edmonton has. But they've committed $153 million to this project or program. They have 13 approved projects uh, and another four projects that are under review. So they've got 17 total. It's been so popular down in Calgary that they had to pause application intake, actually, because they don't have enough funding available. It's not $100 per square foot. Their office to residential development subsidy is $75 per square foot. But it's kind of in line with that range you mentioned for what city administration is proposing. Calgary's program also covers if you want to convert uh, office building into a hotel or into a school or into a performing arts center, there's a, a sliding scale of incentives for that. But it seems to be quite successful down in Calgary, which is maybe an indication that council will look at this and say, we could probably do that here as well. Yeah, this will be something to watch next week, and I'm sure will factor into council's decision. Of course, the other thing that will be factoring into council's decision is they had approved around a 5% property tax increase for 2024. And with EPS salary settlements, it's looking <laughs> a lot like 7% instead. So they're not going to be exactly flush with cash to be doling out. No doubt. Yeah. I will add to the listener who wants to learn more about office conversions. There was a really good recent episode of 99% Invisible, episode 551 Office Space, all about uh, Manhattan and their office to residential conversions and how difficult that is proving to be. Uh, it's 
you know, as every episode of 99% of Visible is, it's a good lesson. And so too are the end of our episodes always a good lesson because that's where we stick the rapid fire segment. The city of Edmonton has launched its first hydrogen-powered public transit bus, noting that nothing bad has ever happened before with hydrogen-powered public transport. And don't worry about the cracks in the pillars. All the rusting electrical cables is normal and everything is fine. The Mandela effect is an observed phenomenon when the collective population misremembers historical events or facts, like the surname of the Berenstain Bears. However, researchers at the U of A have discovered and coined a similar phenomenon that they're calling the Edmonton effect, a collective amnesia for basic driving skills onset by the first snowfall of the year. I choose D, hockey is for everyone, final answer. That was the NHL's response to the million-dollar question after burning their phone a friend and pull the audience lifelines in order to eliminate their preferred response of A, hockey is for homophobes. You want to start your day informed? Well, if it's Friday, you're in luck. Speaking municipally is out. But every other day of the week, you still need to be informed. And that's where Taproot's daily news briefing, The Pulse, comes in. I realize I may be... uh, Burning the lead here. The Pulse also comes out on Friday. You can enjoy that and Speaking Municipally on the same day. I'm always good at selling these. This is why Max gives me the ad segments. Um, The Pulse, it tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. And there's short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of the other beats like business, tech, food, the arts, and more. Uh, You can check it out and subscribe. And also subscribe to this podcast at taprootedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week. The train won't be quite opened by our next episode. But uh, this is your forewarning, 5.15 a.m., November 4th, it's going to be a crazy party. How often do you get to ride a three-year delayed public-private partnership train in the city of Edmonton? It doesn't happen. It's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Municipally.